So in an ideal world, where should these patients be discharged to? In an ideal world? Please say it depends. Please say it depends. <laughs> I feel like there's not another answer here. How could you say anything but that? It so depends, of course it does. Welcome to In the ED Now, a podcast that makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Caitlin Anderson, who's going to talk to you about post-intensive care syndrome, how these patients show up in the emergency department, and what you need to do when they get there. This is a patient population that is prone to high risks of readmission due to high risk of complication after hospitalization. So she'll tell you exactly what you need to screen for, how you need to manage these patients, and suggestions for best referrals. You don't want to miss this episode of In the ED Now. Welcome back to In the ED Now. I'm Rebecca Griffith, the EDDPT, and I have with me today Dr. Caitlin Anderson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Here I I'm am. so excited to have you. Can you tell us, just to like kick things off, three things you want people to know about your background and who you are? Yes. Um, I grew up in small town Nebraska, and I th then went crazy and went to school in Chicago, moved to New York City, and most of my experience is in inpatient environments, including the emergency room, but... I'm really interested in treating and teaching about medically complex populations and intensive care unit populations. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention I am dog mom to two Great Danes. I do have a husband, but um, <laughs> yes, uh, two Great Danes, Maggie and Frida. And we have recently relocated from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to St. George, Utah. That's a different vibe. Different vibe, different time zone. I haven't spent much time west of Denver, so this is totally new for us, the desert life, but so far so good. We've only been here about uh, six weeks, so I went from University of Wisconsin to University of Utah. It looks like a different planet out there, I'm not going to lie. It does. There's red sand, there's black sand, there's lizards and critters, um, most of which we haven't encountered yet, but... I think I also mentioned on the About Me, um, I have a, a severe fear of spiders. And so what I have learned since we have been here is <laughs> in the fall, there is a great Southern Utah tarantula migration. Oh, so, well, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, so what do you do at the University of Utah? So I should back up. I was treating full time uh, for my first seven or eight years um, in New York. And then I took the leap into academia, but I do still treat in acute care and inpatient rehab. Um, but I, my primary teaching has been in neuro, adult neuro, cardiopulm, some neuroanatomy, and uh, kind of like medically complex clinical decision-making, differential diagnosis coursework, whether it's a standalone course or what I hope to do and what I think many programs are trying to do is like weave it in. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just like, oh, wow, we haven't thought about this until this standalone course. Actually, it happens even when students are considering more, quote unquote, simple uh, patient cases. Well, we definitely need that, especially in the emergency department. So to kind of carry that through, one of the patient populations that we haven't talked a lot about on this podcast yet in the emergency department is that post-ICU patient population. So can you tell us a little bit about why you think this is important for EDPTs to know? 
yes, I could talk about this for probably hours. So please keep me on track. So we often call it PICS. So post-intensive care unit syndrome, P-I-C-S. Um, and I would say in the medical world, but also in the rehab world, recognition of kind of this honestly, patient population was happening more often even before COVID. And there's a lot of hypotheses around that, um, most of which kind of tend to highlight the fact that we are dealing with an aging population, um, a large amount of patients coming in that are greater than 65, greater than 75, who are living a lot longer. And because of that, they're living with a lot of variable end-stage organ failure, comorbidities, medications, and all of that. And so because of this aging population, we've kind of been seeing a lot more of these, this other category of ICU admissions, whether, you know, it's kind of like someone is living with end-stage renal failure and something has gone off balance and now they're admitted to the ICU. They've got chronic respiratory um, disease and now they need to be you know, intubated in the ICU. And whereas we kind of would maybe see a more acute diagnosis in the ICU, like a stroke, a heart mm -hmm. attack, a drug overdose, um, something like that. Um, we're kind of seeing now like these medical, but also surgical ICU admissions um, where people have a lot of conditions that have to be managed. Yes. Um, and, they, and they end up staying in the ICU longer. So... That I feel like was gaining speed. And then of course, COVID happened. Yeah. Um, which I think really shined a light on what is happening um, for PTs in ICU, but also just in hospitals in general, including the emergency room um, and what PTs actually do there and what their role is. And mm -hmm. so I think now it's getting discussed a lot, lot more, both like socially, professionally, but also in research. And so, what it is really is anyone who's spent time in the ICU at all, right, may have post-intensive care unit syndrome. Physiologically, we see it typically when patients are in the ICU for longer than one week because we know prognosis-wise, secondary complications just skyrocket um, mm -hmm. after the one week. Um, so they have a harder time weaning off the ventilator. They have a higher risk of ICU-acquired weakness, which is a big, big subset mm -hmm. um, for our PICS patients. And that's typically that, that ICU-acquired myopathy, that diffuse muscle weakness, or polyneuropathy, or mixed, um, which is really kind of like a neuro, a systemic neuro condition um, that is very, very detrimental, um, especially to our frail populations. Um, they have higher risk of p developing PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, repeated hospital admissions. Um, uh, so tell me why, why are they coming back? Going back to the ED? Yeah, so I, 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 we've got these people, they've been discharged from the hospital, they're going out theoretically living their best life, right? But you just said mm -hmm. they have higher risk for repeat hospital admissions. Why is that mm -hmm. happening? What do we need to be aware of? And which patients are we most likely to see? In a perfect world, these patients are being recommended for some type of next level of care. 
continuing rehab, fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. That does not always happen, especially for our patients who might be in that three to five to seven day stay and they made a good medical recovery, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean they don't have these lingering long-term, very serious impairments. I think that- Excellent medical recovery does not equal excellent functional recovery. Yes. And two, I mean, this could be another podcast, but, you you know, the restrictions for inpatient rehab and other rehab environments are, are strict. And sometimes all of these kind of like vague symptoms, um, these patients get sent home. They get sent home or they get sent to a... Um, not as skilled of rehab care. And so these impairments that are lingering, that may be ICU-acquired weakness, uh, polyneuropathy, um, a disrupted sleep-wake, like all of these things, these competing kind of systemic impairments go unaddressed because mm-hmm. they are not, they fall through the continuum of care, they're not getting rehab, or they're not getting enough rehab at home. And we see complications, whether it's a fall, whether it's a medical complication, whether it's worsening of one of these symptoms, I think that's what's really contributing to them returning to the ED. And for PT, certainly, I don't have any evidence to support this, but I think a large majority <laughs> of them are falls, you yeah. know, related to these, what become chronic impairments, especially for the frail population. Yeah. And I would argue anybody coming out of the ICU is probably pretty frail, but are you specifically referring to like our older adult population or perhaps our post-transplant population mm-hmm. or our folks who are, so a lot of these patients that I see, these post-ICU syndrome related patients are sometimes our unhoused patient population who are coming in due to alcohol issues and then they're intubated, sedated in the ICU due to those related issues. Then they go back and they, they're discharged back to the street back to street, back to shelter, which obviously is not optimal for recovery from a social determinants of health perspective. There's no really support network there at all. So I see a lot of those folks coming back in with just like, and I hate using this term, but like failure to thrive. Yeah. What kinds of things should we be screening these patients for in the ED and what kind of discharge planning, uh, recommendations do you have for how we make sure that these patients are set up for success? Cause like you said, there are limitations because we live in a very payer-centered care environment instead of a patient-centered care environment. Yeah, I feel like a couple of major things come to my mind. A, um, a very thorough chart review to understand how many admissions have happened, not within the last month, six months, year. Um, that, to me, is an important piece of information that also could be very clearly communicated as reason to significantly intervene because those are hospital admissions. That is money. Yeah. That is that is institutional money. And especially if it happens in the last within the last 30 days, that is major, major payer. That's a payer driver. And so sometimes we only look at the last one or two notes, but really taking the time um, to get an appreciation of what's happened over the last year, especially like the example you mentioned, if someone is homeless or lives in a shelter or has unstable um, living environment or decreased access to resources, especially. So that is kind of, to me, a subjective report, report, but 
Other things we can do is the MRC sum score actually was brought up as a COVID-19 core measure. So um, for people who don't know what that is, can you tell yeah, what that is? Sure. It really um, reflects our basic PT manual muscle test. And so it's very, it's very simple to perform. It looks at upper and lower extremities, very um, straightforward manual muscle test, but it's a, it's a common language between um, physicians and it actually helps distinguish between IC required weakness and not first with a simple cutoff score. I personally think, A, that is uh, really easy for us to administer, and it provides us a common language with our, the rest of our medical team. Wow, like less than 48 out of 60 shows that this person is at a high risk for ICU-required weakness. Nice, objective, fast measure, because especially in the ED, right, we're looking for repeatable, good, clear cutoffs that can be demonstrated to insurance, demonstrated to the medical team, and that we no can document no equipment, exactly. No extra time, um, no extra space. Seriously. Um, and to go off of that, I would say also the impact, right? Mm -hmm. The impact. Yeah, for sure. You know, I want to, I want to um, be clear on like, there's such now great research about discharge disposition related to AMPAC across like the medical team, right? But there's also been some recent really cool research that says that cannot stand alone, right? That can, mm -hmm. the AMPAC, score cannot stand alone and that the PT recommendation is still needed clustered with the AMPAC score. Um, and, but I would, I'd also, I would highly recommend using the AMPAC in conjunction with something like the MRC sum score, your subjective report. And then of course I will die on the hill. I will die on the hill if able gate speed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I so, will it's funny that you say that because a lot of times when I am working in kind of the, like fast track area of the emergency department, so I'm seeing those people that are like ambulatory, they're there for minor musculoskeletal issues. And I'm watching the paramedics walk with patients from the front of the ED to the back of the ED. And so many times the paramedic is like 50 feet ahead of the patient as the patient like struggles to keep up with them. And I'm like mentally thinking that one's mine, that one's mine, that one's mine because of the gate speed is so, so terribly impaired that you can already tell that there's an issue, right? You need to know why their gate speed is the way, like, are they trying not to vomit? Maybe that's why. But I, I think it's, it's a hugely useful screening tool because I think ED staff that aren't physical therapists can pick up on that as well. Totally. And, you know, now they've, they've done such a great job. They've, you know, further differentiated it from like, I do believe six vital sign hundred percent, but all the way down to like, you know, with this gate speed, you have an increased risk of cognitive decline. You have an increased risk of required assistance for ADLs. You have an increased risk for rehospitalization within a certain time. I mean, that is robust, really clear information. Of course, not everyone is ambulatory or ambulatory without a lot of assistance, um, but that one prognostically and uh, as a way to communicate with the rest of the team and payers is like, I would say really, really important. Agreed. Can I ask you another question? Yes. What about cognition? At what point do you, I feel like all of these patients usually need some kind of cognitive screening. Yep. Should we be doing this or should we be pulling in our OT colleagues to have them do some of this work? I think, and this is my, this is my personal opinion. Um, <clears throat> I think we should always be screening it 
no matter what, we should always be screening it. But if we want a solid objective measure, like something like the MOCA, we should 100% be pulling in our OT colleagues. I don't think our OT colleagues get consulted enough in the emergency and, room, and, unless it is something super obvious, like someone broke bilateral wrists on an outstretched fall, you know what right. I'm saying? Um, and really needs some adaptive, adaptive equipment. They do not get um, called to the ED nearly enough. And I would also say that also our speech colleagues, for sure, just public knowledge, really a lot. Many people do not have a full understanding of the amount of kind of like executive function, memory, cognition, screening that both of those professions do. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell you right now that somebody's going to push back on that and say the ED is not the place for that. The ED is not the place to solve all of these problems. Those, those problems are not emergencies. They don't need to be dealt with in the ED. So how would you respond to that? Like, what would you tell somebody to tell their, their hospital team, their medical team, their administrators as to why this is really critical in the ED, especially mm -hmm. with this patient population? I would say to go back just a bit, that is really why you need to do your really nice thorough chart review because you need ammunition. Yes. For lack of a better word, you know, you need to do your homework before you come to the team with kind of that request, because I don't blame, a you know, a team, an ED team for that rebuttal at all. Right. Yeah, because they can do that as an outpatient. Exactly. Um, that is why you have to come with that information of this amount of repeat hospitalizations, acute on chronic changes, or maybe these are chronic changes that might change the plan. Providing the entire picture and how this type of screening could change discharge planning so that this isn't the vicious cycle that we are seeing. Yes. And if that one 20 minute assessment decreases tens of thousands of dollars of a hospital readmission. I mean, I feel like that is a very, very solid argument. Now, not everyone will agree with that. Certainly, I'm sure you can say the same. I've had similar conversations like this with social workers, case managers, and physicians, and that has fallen you know, on not a lot of um, support. Yeah. Um, but, right, you still have that conversation and then you're documenting that conversation because if it happens again and it probably will, right? That's even more, you know, that's strengthening it even further. We don't want that to happen, but. And I've had that conversation when the patient's back for the third time, I'm like, PT has evaluated this patient multiple times. These are the recommendations that we've made. We need more data. We need more input. We need these other professionals to get involved because yeah, the patient might be able to ambulate 150 feet in the ED with a walker. Mm -hmm. So I get that you that you feel like that's enough for this patient to be able to go home. But if they're not oriented, if they're cognitively impaired, they can't figure out how to feed and dress themselves. They can't manage their personal hygiene. They certainly can't manage their medications. This is going to be a revolving door until there's some intervention. And I just thought of one other point. Um, and I, I this is a little institution dependent, but I think it's becoming more common with what I said before about kind of our aging older and sicker population is that um, I think there is a lot more access and availability, if not in person through telehealth of, you know, geriatric nurse practitioners and, and kind of more geriatric focused or community focused nurse practitioners and, and DO physicians, whatever, that are much more prevalent in the community and then can kind of address 
some of these things. And I know definitely for like a geriatric MP, they do actually in their consult do a lot more objective testing of cognition. And they also have just a much more, um, they have a lot of knowledge related to adult protective services and other resources that just maybe we don't encounter every single day. They're not as conventional, but they just, because they're, it's their specialty area, they just have a lot more baseline knowledge about it. And then lastly, I mean, you don't ever want this to happen, but also there are medical ethics, right? (laughs) Medical ethic teams and committees that are also much more prevalent. So talk Uh, to me about that. When are you getting those people involved? Because I think that's hard, especially in the ICU. In my ICU experience, there have been lots of times where I felt like I had to get the, the ethics team involved based on what was happening with patients, what the patients wanted, what the medical team wanted, what the families wanted, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But again, I'm going to say that somebody in the ED is going to be like, that shouldn't be happening here. But I would argue mm-hmm. on your side, that should absolutely be happening here because what happens in the ED may dictate what happens next to this patient for a long time. Yeah, I don't think there's a there's a definite right answer. This is a huge gray area. I think that it would be really hard from a PT perspective to advocate for something like this, if this is the first or second ED admission, and that is super freaking unfortunate. Um, With repeat offenses, your story is going to get stronger. But I would also say that is why it's so important to get those objective measures from the beginning. You hope you never see this patient ever again. Fingers crossed. If you know, fingers crossed, but even on that one and done, or you see them a second time, you know, doing those objective measures and what you feel is appropriate to really demonstrate physical and cognitive impairment is so important for documentation purposes, because that's a legal document that you can go back to, to with the team and say, look at this, you know, all together, bam, 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 bam. Look at these things. These are trends. Like this is not an isolated scenario or problem. This is a trend. And, you know, and that's why quality improvement projects are born oftentimes because you can demonstrate through trends, right? Less so the one and done, but through trends on how much money can be saved for this hospital by taking one or two extra steps. And especially like if this is a somewhat, depending on your institution, a somewhat common problem, right? Because we are intuitive healthcare providers. We pay attention. We ask questions. We ask special questions. And oftentimes we're the people, right? That like identify like I'm right. seeing provider at the right time. I'm seeing this, you know, is there something in this order set or in this admission criteria that would trigger a medical ethics consult that would trigger a geriatrician that would trigger a nurse practitioner, you know, that has community resources that would trigger this, you know, because the worst thing we could do is notice something repeatedly and do nothing. Yes. Right. That's actually, I would argue, causing harm. I would totally agree with that. So from that perspective, if I have a patient who comes in who's got post-ICU syndrome, what do I absolutely not want to miss? What are some common complications that are commonly missed that I want to like nip in the bud and make sure are getting handled? I think some more obvious impairments are typically, you know, strength, balance, things that are very clearly contributing to fall risk, 
right? Mm -hmm. We test and look for fall risk so much in the ED. But what is commonly missed is what we just talked about, cognitive decline, cognitive dysfunction, executive dysfunction, memory problems, especially short-term memory problems. But we also miss bowel and bladder dysfunction. Ooh, yes. We often miss cardiovascular and respiratory dysfunction. Well, dysautonomia. Post, I mean, post COVID again, this was happening before COVID, but now we are just the N, <laughs> the N equals is getting just greater and greater and greater with autonomic dysfunction and just huge vital sign, huge blood pressure and heart rate dysregulation, whether it's post COVID or post intensive care unit or, or whatever, we miss that. And as a profession, you know, like, we just don't take vital signs enough, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially if you're an outpatient, right? And you're maybe not used to working all the time in the hospital and you're floating to the ED. That certainly happens so much. Um, we take them at the beginning and then we're not very good about taking it immediately post-activity and at the end and looking at that with variety of intensity, variety of met level. Well, I and promise so you, if it's not us, it's nobody else. Like there's not anybody else really doing that assessment of vitals with activity. So I think those are some of the realms that get missed that, to your point, all problems are not going to get solved in one session and yes. one, hopefully one occurrence because you hope they never come back again. But then it is your duty. It is your due diligence to figure out the correct pathway for that person. And that often leads to referral sets and trying to make it so that that patient does not fall through the cracks. You know, if you're living in kind of a metropolitan area and you've got big teaching medical centers, picks recovery programs and picks outpatient centers and specific post-intensive care unit PT programs do exist. Yes. They exist. And wow, that is great. If you can, you know, push that referral elsewhere, because then that is kind of, that is where a lot of those systems could get addressed in detail, right? They're looking at spirometry. They're doing some max exercise testing. They're making, they're bringing in a dietitian. They're doing, they're really addressing what is a multi-system problem, but you might not have that luxury, right? And so, your best bet might be to a figure out what type of rehabilitation pathway is needed, but b get some type of consistent medical check-in care so that they can look at your note and figure out what if there is any specialty referral practice that's needed. Because you know, I'm thinking about those in our rural environments and those you know that are not anywhere near a teaching medical center and, mm -hmm. and some of these things um, where it's not perfect practice, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. So I think what I'm hearing you say, just to kind of recap is PICS is a thing. PICS is a thing and it's a, it's a large thing. And I, you know, I just want to make it clear that it's beyond fall risk. It's beyond weakness. It's cognitive dysfunction, bowel and bladder, autonomic nervous system, but ultimately all these things lead people to not return to work despite their age. Young people, we have, I've talked a lot about geriatrics, but young people have all of these risks greater than one week in the ICU. They don't return to work. You know, they have a, 
higher risk of suicidal ideation and suicide, PTSD, anxiety, depression, where, as we all know, you know, PT is a lot more, is a lot more than someone being able to walk independently at a certain gait speed. It's to live and thrive a life that people want to live. And so um, that's just one thing I want to. It exists, but it's just, it spans so much more than what we think about as someone, oh, someone's very, very weak and they're at high risk for falls, you know? Yeah, so those patients need systemic review when they come in. They need a functional review. They need a cognitive review. They need a social determinants of health review. They need to know what you need to know what kind of services they're eligible for. What are the best match for those specific needs? And we need to make sure that they get the follow-up care that they need. What am I missing? I I just think we're probably on the cusp of across the PT world of just really there's more research coming out. Soon there'll be a lot more evidence of incidence and prevalence of PICS, especially post-COVID and all of the kind of long-term effects. And so that's all like great information to bring to your medical teams. If you're really considering like what I mentioned about adjusting order sets, um, which can certainly help with data collection, which helps with, you know, you are substantiating reason for, you know, and then that ultimately, hopefully with time, right? Like, We've seen this with early mobilization 15 whatever years ago, you know, it was so hard at the beginning, but then we created standardized pathways and then we got a lot of data and now we know it's great, but some of these things might need to follow the same path. Well, and I always tell people, if you really want to stay in the ED as a physical therapist, you have to be part of the algorithm. You have to be part of the pathway. And I think that's absolutely what you're talking about here is making sure that these patients have the right pathway. We're using order sets. We're using referral patterns. We're making sure that people aren't missing the the resources that they need. Mm -hmm. Perfect. So in an ideal world, where should these patients be discharged to? In an ideal world, please say it depends. Please say it depends. I feel like there's not another answer here. How could you say anything but that? It so depends. Of course, it does. (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't be a a teacher if I didn't like say that at least once. I could think you need an "it depends" glitter tattoo. Like, oh yeah. Um, I it does depend, and I would say a lot of it depends on, unfortunately, medical acuity. But I want everyone to know it is possible that someone can leave the hospital and have significant impairments and they can 100% decline a lot at home. Yes. And they can come back in the emergency room under observation status, not admitted. And that person may need to be admitted to acute inpatient rehabilitation. And that is really why it's important to know the pathways uh, in the ED, because that can happen. It's not like, I just feel it's not kind of like a normal way of thinking has been a normal way of thinking as like, if this, then this, if this, then this. Yeah. But sometimes that is needed to break the cycle, to literally break the cycle. So, you know, in a perfect world, if someone really needed multi-system robust therapy, they would go to acute inpatient rehab, or they would go to one of these post-intensive care unit syndrome programs, which a lot of, many of them are outpatient based. Yes. But But, that assumes a lot. That assumes a lot of function for somebody to be able to get to that and participate in it. It sure does. Your next best option is probably 
you know, depending on their, their level, home versus outpatient, but with a very, very specific home exercise plan and follow-up plan on your part that is in agreement with everyone in the medical team. And, you know, I there's been some really great research about the impact of just follow-up phone calls from the medic from the ed from the medical center three seven you know 14 days after a hospital admission on catching some of these very significant complications and identifying referrals interesting i think it's been i think it's becoming more common certainly probably not across the board but that's like such it's been such a simple intervention as a follow-up phone call and so if that is not something that is happening at your place of work that is also there's a lot of great there's a lot of great examples for quality improvement, mostly driven through nursing, um, about follow-up post-ED admission. And I would hope at minimum you would have that option of home versus outpatient. But not always unstable living situation to shelter to street, you're looking at community resources. And you know, that's just not perfect, right? I had a lot of scenarios in New York City where not only did someone need kind of this multi-system intervention, they needed basic things like DME and they could not even have DME, right? Because it posed a liability and a threat in that certain environment. Or like food or access to their medications or a safe place to sleep. And, you know, then information about shelters and stuff is so important and so great, but sometimes that's not, that's not even an option uh, because shelters get full and they get a capacity and they have to turn people away. And if you have any history of any negative activity or, or anything, any one of these places, they often don't accept people back. Yeah. It's, it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for being on the show today. I want to know, like, if you're going to leave EDPTs with one parting thought, what's it going to be? I would say, I think we do this really great as PTs constantly, but I always think to myself when I'm in the emergency room of what I would need if I was that person, mm-hmm. you know, what I would need, like, and I think that helps bring it back, especially if, if I mean, you know how it is. It's crazy. It's chaotic. It's busy. You might have 10 evals on your schedule. People are paging you and calling you and, oh, there's so many things to manage. And that can easily, that can really easily cloud that extra time or question. Sometimes it's one question, Mm -hmm. right? It's one question that opens up this thing that needs to be addressed that could change that person's life, really, because... You know, I know you talk about this a lot, but like it is one place where you could literally change the trajectory of someone's life one time, one time, one one interaction, really, truly. And so I always think about that because it's so easy to get wrapped up and have it be so crazy and be so busy in healthcare, like, uh, but um, I always try to bring myself back, you know, to that. Like if it was me, if it was my loved one, they would want me, me as the PT, to ask the extra question, make the extra phone call, Google the extra thing. Yes. And I feel like a good way to ask that question is, what do you need to be able to feel like you can go home safely today? Mm-hmm. And the, you will be so surprised by those answers. You'll be and so surprised about how many people just don't, they encounter so many people in the ED environment and no one asks that question. Ever. 
Yep. Because we know what we need for them to be able to leave the ED. But we don't always think about what they need. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I appreciate having you so much. And I think we need to have you on again to talk about like how we manage those order sets, how we use that EMR and how we streamline what we're doing in the ED to be more successful. Thank you for listening. In the ED Now is a podcast hosted and produced by Rebecca Griffith, the ED DPT, as part of Rebecca Griffith Physical Therapy, LLC. Our podcast makes you an excellent emergency department physical therapist. This podcast is intended for educational use only and is not intended as clinical or medical advice. While we make every effort for accuracy, factual errors may be present. Since you've been in the ED, I'm prepared to give you your discharge instructions. Please subscribe, share, and find more at the eddpt.com. You're officially discharged.